Good morning, Church. Uh, my name is Stephen Carlson. My wife, Natalie, and I have been attending for almost 15 years. Uh, she's currently upstairs us helping with Kids Church. We have two daughters, uh, Elizabeth, who's six, and Gabriella, who's three. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. I'll be reading from the New International Version. <clears throat> it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you shall have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, shall, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. I always have to admire Steve's mustache. It's not even Movember. It's just awesome. One of my earliest memories of Steve and Natalie, actually, was uh, one of the very first Sundays that uh, we had come on staff at TCC in March of 2009, and we had brunch like we do now, and we sat at a table with him and Natalie and Brad and Leanne Liskey. Leanne was playing the piano today, Brad was on guitar. Uh, so these are couples and families that have been around TCC for longer than I have been. Uh, but what was really cool about that exchange was uh, many, many years ago, I was Brad's youth pastor. And, uh, and then Brad, at one point, became Steve's youth pastor. And so it was kind of cool sitting there having breakfast, kind of this generational pastoral thing happening. It was pretty cool. Well, probably from a very young age, we already have formed ideas about what the good life is, about what really living is all about. As a kid, uh, I don't know if my parents uh, were in favor of this or not. Um, they evidently didn't say anything about it. But I had co- picked posters of exotic cars on my bedroom walls. A Ferrari, a Lamborghini, you know, things that I think I was at that point in my um, ignorance, uh, thinking that I would achieve and be able to own one of these amazing cars. 
A little bit later on, I matured in what I thought I might be able to achieve. And I must have gone to somebody's house as a kid. And they had, you know, the, the water and ice dispenser on the fridge door. And he used to always joke that, you know, someday when I'm independently wealthy, I'm going to have a fridge just like that. Shooting high. Well, um, a few years ago when we moved to Edmonton, we bought a house, had a big mortgage, and a fridge with ice dispenser and, uh, and water on the door. Now, you probably know that it was my birthday this last week, and so if you missed it, I'll still accept best wishes and gifts up until at least this Wednesday. I think a week is about kind of the, the time frame. Um, but you know, when you get older, how do you celebrate birthdays? Lucas no longer lives at home. Anna, um, you might know, is getting married this summer. And so there is this sense of, you know, impending doom and things are going to change. And so sometimes the best gift is just um, spending time with my family. Now, my family did get me a gift, and I've often said, usually around Christmas time, is that the best gifts are those that you, 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 that you would use or that you need, but you necessarily wouldn't or maybe couldn't buy for yourself. And so they must have had uh, some fun thinking about what could they get me for my birthday. And so they got me, of all things, a smart mug. Have you ever heard of this thing? I never had. It's as silly as it sounds, yes. Any mug that says charge before use is ridiculous. But honestly, up until Wednesday, I didn't even know such a thing existed. But after three blissful days of using this mug, I have to say it may have been one of the best gifts I've ever received. I mean, um, probably only second to... Tina and, uh, and the kids and Jesus, you know, those are pretty good. But the, the, this smart mug ranks right up there. A completely non-essential luxury item. And now that I have my fridge with the water dispenser and my smart mug, I must really be living. Well, you know that there's more. We are starting a new series of messages today that we've entitled Living the Life. And it's a study on Jesus' last words, found in John chapter 13 through to the end of the gospel in chapter 21. These are the last words of Jesus before his death and resurrection. Now, if you think about last words or final words, they carry importance. Now, these words carry importance not in a way that they lessen the importance of the other things that Jesus said, but in the sense that of all the things that he could have taught his disciples that night, these are the words and teachings that he focused on. And so by studying these last words, we are inviting you to live your life by the words of Jesus. And so I leave you with this question or I start maybe with this question, and we'll return to it, I'm sure, many times in this series. But what really is the life that Jesus has called us to? What is really living? What does it mean, then, to live out our faith? Now, we've just finished a series this January that we called Following Together, where we responded and thought about the the invitation of Jesus to come follow me. 
in that we again reminded ourselves that Jesus invites us to come to him, to be in relationship with him, to come to him in faith and in trust, and then by following him, by living under the lordship of Jesus and the authority of scripture. In other words, to live our lives as disciples, to be about discipleship. And we've encouraged you to use a tool that has been around for centuries called a rule of life to just help create rhythms and structures in our lives that actually help us to intentionally walk with Jesus. And so in this series, we're going to continue to unpack some of those themes by looking at the teaching of Jesus that took place on the night before he was crucified. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to, in a sense, journey to the cross. We'll look at some, in some detail at chapters 13 through 17. Then on Good Friday, we'll have a service and we'll focus on the events of chapters 18 and 19. Easter, of course, is chapter 20 of the, the resurrection passages. And then one Sunday more after that to wrap up the series in John 21. And so all of this has an obvious connection to Lent. Lent is the 40-day journey that uh, begins on Ash Wednesday, which is February 22nd. Um, And we'll give you a little bit more information how we can more intentionally focus uh, on those 40 days as well. So that's what this series is about. So as we think about John 13, let me introduce it to you a little bit this morning. We're going to start basically just half past the halfway point in John's Gospel. The first 12 chapters traced his public ministry, and now the next chapters cover kind of his private ministry, just Jesus and the 12 disciples. Now, while the other Gospels record the details of the events of the final week, none of them spend as much time as John does in recording the last words of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And while the first 12 chapters promised the cross, it's these last chapters that then emphasize the cross. And in terms of what we know as Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday and ending with Easter Sunday, it's essentially Thursday night. The disciples are together in a large upper room of a man's house. They are the captive audience of Jesus' teaching. All of the events were leading, the scripture says, to the hour or his hour, and the time had now come. And so Jesus is, in essence, giving a farewell address to what he calls affectionately his own. Reading again from verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So he knew that this was before him. And then then John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so there they were, eating supper together, just Jesus and his disciples, whom he refers to here as his own, indicating this intimate connection. One final meal before his arrest later that evening. And they are starting to celebrate the Passover as well. Now, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that John doesn't record the details of what we now call the Lord's Supper in the same way that the other Gospel writers do, where Jesus takes at this uh, occasion in the upper room the bread and the cup to symbolically represent his death through his broken body and shed blood. And scholars suggest that John probably assumed that his readers were already familiar with the details of the Lord's Supper from the other gospel writers. 
And John wanted to record what happened that night and the teaching of Jesus on that night, and so he gives his attention more fully to that. The events of that night, in fact, are fascinating and dramatic. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that upper room? To imagine the conversation that took place amongst the disciples? Obviously, most of it isn't recorded, but you do wonder what that banter was like between the disciples. But it would be pure speculation. One thing that Luke records is that a dispute about greatness takes place. Jesus responds by telling them then about what true servanthood is all about. John then records what Jesus said and did. And in a powerful display of humility, service, and love, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And so he interrupts the meal that they were enjoying to demonstrate his love through the act of washing their feet. So what can this simple act teach us about really living the life that Jesus desires for us to live? Now, there are so many layers and complexities and ways one can approach this passage, and I wrestled with it all week long, but I'm simply going to lay out three ways that Jesus modeled really living, just three foundational truths. First of all, Jesus modeled humility. He modeled humility. The act of washing the feet of his disciples modeled humility. It was an act that was, in fact, rooted in his identity. It was anchored in his relationship with God. Look at verses 3 to 5. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so in other words, when we read even this first word verse, it just reminds us that Jesus had power and authority that was granted to him from God. He was God's son. He had status, you could say. He was the rabbi, and they were the disciples. He was the teacher, and they were the students. Now, foot washing itself was a common practice in first century Jewish culture. Walking in sandals on dusty roads ensured that dirty feet was something that everyone had. So it was, in fact, considered an act of hospitality when someone first entered a home to actually wash their feet. And in Luke chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee is called out by Jesus for not washing his feet as a metaphor for humble service, or when he came into his house. The metaphor for humble service, excuse me, was the Apostle Paul in writing to Timothy, and he uses the washing of the feet to, to signify this. The task of washing feet was considered so menial, so almost degrading, that it was even beneath Jewish slaves. They thought, let's just leave this for the Gentiles, who basically had no status. All ancient sources make it clear that foot washing was a degrading and lowly task. Simply put, you would never have someone with a higher status washing the feet of those beneath them. And yet, here was Jesus. Now, Jesus is modeling here more than just a physical cleansing, The washing of the feet had more to do than just the physical washing of dirty feet. 
The washing of the feet was symbolic of a much greater spiritual cleansing. You see, by going to the cross, Jesus made it possible to have our sins forgiven. Since he, forgiven, since he poured out his life, he in fact made eternal life possible. So all of that was the ultimate washing, the ultimate cleansing. Because Jesus' sacrificial death cleanses sin. And so Jesus modeled humility. That is why the apostle would write to the Philippians later in chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. He says, who, that is Jesus, being in very nature God. And so we often remind ourselves, Jesus was fully God and fully man. But even though he was in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Some translations say something to be grasped, something to hold on to and hang on to at all costs. Rather, Paul writes, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see... Jesus modeled humility in his sacrificial death. And here in this scene, by being true to his identity, he takes off his outer outer clothing as if to symbolically lay down his status. A posture of a servant. What might that look like today? Today it might mean someone with status, with power, with authority, rolling up their sleeves to do a menial task. Now, in the category of it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, as I thought about this, there were many examples of humble and humil- humble leadership and humble service that came to mind. But one in particular stood out. Most of you uh, who've been at TCC over the last, uh, well, maybe you've already met him, even if you've been here for a month, you've known Bill Caulfield. I've known Bill. He's sitting right back here by the sound booth. I'm sorry to pick on you this morning, Bill, and I hope you don't blush too much about what I share. But it really was heavy on my heart. (laughs) Yeah, you can leave it. Um, Bill lived a life of leadership. Um, I met Bill 26 years ago when I started serving a church in Ontario that he had grown up in. His life was marked, as I said, by leadership. He was a high school teacher. When a number of churches got together and bought a piece of land to run a summer camp, he then volunteered to become the camp director and spent five of his eight weeks off as a teacher out at the camp. Some of you have even, I think, have been at that camp or maybe have talked to Bill about Camp Bonacher. He always found himself in church leadership roles and extended that then to association leadership within the Eastern Association of the North American Baptist Conference. When he then did retire from teaching, he actually took on the role and served as the regional minister for that Eastern Association. And when he retired from that role, and after his wife passed away, he moved out here to Edmonton to be near his children and his grandchildren, and our relationship was then reunited. But here's the thing. I say that because Bill had status. He was recognized as a leader of leaders. 
But not once in the eight plus years that he's been attending TCC did he come to me and say, you know, what could really move this place forward is if I was in leadership. Instead, he regularly encourages me and our staff. He's the guy that you wouldn't know, but every week comes by, sticks his head in the back door, and sees if there's a pile of recycling and bottles to take back to the depot. So he loads them in his car and he takes them away. He's the guy that does the grocery shopping for the brunch that we're going to enjoy every week. He's 82. And sometimes you'll find him loading a container with medical supplies through his work with White Cross. Did I tell you that he's 82? (laughs) Bill is a present-day example of humility and service. There's many Bills at TCC, and it's an honor to be their pastor. But really living is this. It's living a life of humility. About having a life marked by humble service. About not getting bent out of shape if our service service isn't recognized, not living with a sense of entitlement, but being willing to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty for the sake of others. You know, uh, just before Paul gives that incredible description of the humility of Jesus, he exhorts the Philippians with these words, verses 3 to 4. He says, "'Do nothing out of selfish ambition.'" Or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he says, Have the same mindset of Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality to be grasped. So Paul uses Jesus there again as an example of the kind of mindset, of the kind of life that we then need to live with. Can I ask you, what is your attitude toward others? Are you willing and able, prepared to roll up your sleeves, no matter who you are, no matter what your status, in order to serve others? And friends, this doesn't just happen without Jesus' help. Without the Spirit of God doing a work of transformation in our own hearts, changing our attitudes. And so first of all, I want you just to notice that Jesus modeled humility. Secondly, Jesus modeled service. Now, if you're ever presenting on servant leadership and they allow you to use the Bible as a reference, this is a great passage to go to. And as I said, this is more than just the washing of feet. There's the spiritual cleansing because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But what we do know is that Jesus actually washed the feet of his disciples. And by doing so, he reduced himself to the lowest status in order to serve them. In verses 12 through 17, we read, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And now the teaching takes place. He does the act, and now he teaches. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked his disciples. You call me teacher. And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Just imagine what the disciples witnessed there in the upper room. Jesus, the exalted Messiah, the King, the Lord, assuming the role of a servant to cleanse others. Jesus declared himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve. He was a servant that put others first and their needs first. And so here he takes a towel and a basin to set an example of service. Now, I've been fortunate to spend time with many exceptional servant leaders, men and women who have served as elders and pastors in churches that I've served or um, have just been colleagues with. One in particular stands out. Um, This man was a successful realtor in Calgary. He attended the church that I served there, but even in spite of his success, was incredibly down-to-earth. And in uh, 1997, in January, we had the opportunity to do a short-term missions trip to Nicaragua, and both of us were on the team together. And on this trip, we had in, in mind to do three things. We distributed Christmas shoe boxes, and if you ever wonder about the value of participating in Operation Christmas Child and packing a shoe box, I can tell you from first-hand experience, it blows these kids away. The joy that they receive when they get this box filled with, with toys and gifts is amazing. But we also went to build a church, and so most of the jobs were kind of construction jobs, and we also built biosand water filters while we were there. So it was a pretty comprehensive trip, lots of fun things to do. And we had gone to a fairly remote uh, region of the country in the northern part of the country towards Honduras, And uh, we stayed at a local school. And the school had open windows, like uh, just bricks maybe halfway up, and then bars uh, for the rest of the way. And um, there were a couple of different buildings like that and sort of a little compound. And on that compound was uh, an outhouse. Now, Rudy himself wasn't particularly handy, but he had a heart to serve others. And so he thought, well, while everybody else is doing their work, I'm going to serve the team. Now, the outhouse that was there was, in fact, a pretty nice one. They must have sent a construction crew in there. It had a concrete floor. It had a real toilet that obviously dropped down into a pit. But it was disgusting when we got there. These were school children that were using this. So you can kind of imagine what it looked like. Maybe you've stopped at a public restroom or a gas station that looked a little bit like this, right? Just absolutely nasty. And the thing about when they're that bad, they just get worse, right? Because nobody wants to go in and clean it when it gets to that place. It's nasty and it's gross. And so everybody the first day was just complaining about it. No one really wanted to use it, even though obviously they had to use it. And so the next day, when everyone was down at the construction site or building these water filters, Rudy rolls up his sleeves and he scrubs, and he scrubs, and he scrubs. And then he hauled water in portable um, bags that would be our showers, black bags that when they hung in the sun would heat up and you'd actually have a warm shower at the end of a long, dirty day. And he did the little things that made the experience for everyone else a little bit better. It was meticulous. You could have almost eat off, eat off the floor in that outhouse if you wanted to. I don't know why you would, but it was unbelievable. And I remember the impression that it left on me as a young pastor to see an elder in our church, a successful businessman, 
roll up his sleeve and get on his knees and scrub this dirty outhouse. Friends, where might God be calling you to roll up your sleeves? When you think of all the areas that you might be called to serve in, what does that look like? Maybe you're a leader, you're a manager at work, and you just throw your coffee mug in the sink and let somebody else clean it because that's beneath you. How can we serve one another? How can we model what Jesus commanded us to do in simple ways that make a difference in the lives of others? I know that God will show you if you ask him where you might model um, a heart of service. And lastly, Jesus modeled love. I mean, really, this is what motivated this grand, humble, sacrificial, loving act in the first place. He loved his disciples, and to show them how much, he washed their dirty, stinky feet. But more than that, it was because of love that he gave his life. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But here's something that really just jumped out to me in this passage in John. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Think about this for a minute with me. Because the theme of betrayal actually runs throughout this passage and on into the verses 18 through 30, which we haven't read. But Jesus clearly knew the cost of his love. And even though Jesus knew his betrayer well, he still got down on his knees and washed his feet. He still gave him something to eat. In verse 26, there's a very clear indication that Jesus took some of the bread that they were eating and dipped it in in some of the common plates and fed it to Judas, which was a cultural symbol that refers to this personal intimacy that they shared. It's absolutely stunning to me to think that Jesus washed Judas's feet and gave him something to eat. If that isn't modeling love, I don't know what is. But I also don't think it was easy for Jesus to do this. Reading these verses, you get the impression that Jesus is troubled about this and it weighs heavily on him. Uh, There may be many reasons why this is weighing on him. Maybe he's just sad because he knows not only is he going to be betrayed and what that's going to do to him, but maybe he's thinking about the long-term future of Judas, somebody who was going to be walking away from him. And it broke his heart. But this matter of betrayal surfaces several times throughout this passage. And it's very clear that Jesus knows who is going to betray him. So he's not surprised when it eventually happens. But still, this was a man that he had chosen. They had just spent the last three years of their life together. He was the treasurer of this group, no doubt, meaning that that he was a person and was in a position of trust. But in verse 21, we read, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, there's no question that betrayal hurts, and it hurts badly. 
And I have no intention or desire to try to minimize the hurt caused by betrayal. I don't think that there's anything that stings quite as badly. But when you look at the life of Jesus and his response to Judas here, what I want us to notice is that he didn't become bitter. He didn't become vindictive. He didn't become angry. In fact, the opposite is true. Later on, Matthew records that when they're actually in the garden and Judas comes with those who are going to arrest him, he looks at him and says, do what you've come to do, friend. And I don't think it was a sarcastic friend. I think it was just a realization that you were my friend. And I love you. You see... With God's help and with God's power, we can choose to forgive. And forgiveness in itself is an act of love. Some of you are probably familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if there's a a, a more powerful illustration of forgiveness as an act of love. Corey and her sister Betsy and their family helped many Jewish people um, escape from the Nazis during the Holocaust and World War II. They were eventually caught, arrested, and then sent to a concentration camp themselves. And in a book, The Hiding Place, she recalls forgiving a guard at the concentration camp where her sister died. I'm going to read a fairly extensive excerpt from this, only because I think I would never do it justice in trying to describe it. And so this is Corey Ten Boom in her own words describing this unbelievable encounter that she then later experienced after the war. She writes, it was at a, in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out, filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiveness... I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever." The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. 
A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives as a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those, listen to this, those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still, I stood there with the cloudness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I know that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Perhaps today you hear this and you're feeling the sting and weight of betrayal yourself. And it's hard. There's no other way to put it. And betrayal hurts so much because someone we love acted in a way that cut so deep. But maybe the invitation to you is to think about how Jesus responded to Judas this morning. How Corey ten Boom responded to the guard. 
knowing what Jesus did and knowing what she did. Friends, this morning, I don't come to you with a motivational speech. You know, just try harder that you too can live the good life through humility, service, and love. You can't just manufacture this because you're a good person trying really hard. The bottom line is that each of us first need to respond to the call of God on our lives, the invitation of Jesus to come and follow me. Each of us need to experience Jesus in our own lives first, to know that we are beneficiaries of his humble, sacrificial love and service, that we would know God's love displayed in the cross and be anchored in that truth. And frankly, without a life-transforming encounter with God's love for us, we will never be in a position to love anyone else. But when we do, when we experience God's loving kindness, then and only then can we really live. Eternal life, yes, but full and abundant life now. Lives that are flourishing because of the truth of the gospel that is at work in our lives. He has shown you, O man and woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act selfishly, to live a life of comfort and convenience, to enjoy a cup of cold water dispensed from a fridge and a mug that keeps your coffee at just the right temperature, to climb the corporate ladder, to love money and a life of leisure, and walking over those who get in your way, and then finally, to enjoy the spoils of your success in retirement. Is that the life that God has called us to? I don't think so. Because He has shown you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? Friends, this is really living. And Jesus says to you and I this morning, do as I have done for you. Live with humility, live a life of service, live a life of love. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They'll join me here at the front. They'll lead us in a closing song where I think it's important for us just to remind ourselves today again just of the faithfulness of God and what He's done in our lives and how we then in turn can respond to others in grace and humility and love and kindness and forgiveness and just walk that out the days of our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We Thank you for just the simple and yet profound act of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And in that one act, of course, reminding us of the greatest sacrificial act of love anyone could ever imagine. And so, Lord, you call us to to live as Jesus lived to be people who are quick to lay down our status as an act of humility, to be people who will be quick to roll up our sleeves as an act of service, and to be people who, relying on your strength and your power, forgive and love and even serve those who have hurt us, who have betrayed us. So, Father, I pray for 
the ears and the hearts and the minds that have heard these words today. And I pray, God, that that only by your Spirit will you help each of us process what we've heard you say to us today. Maybe there's just something hard here, something that doesn't fit well with us, and we're trying to make sense of that. But God, we turn to you, we look to you, and we trust you because you are the faithful one. And we give our lives to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.